0: Good morning. It is good to worship the Lord together. It is encouraging to see the gospel moving forward. Missionaries sending out, it's always encouraging. Uh, If you have your Bibles with you this morning, turn to, uh, we will start and begin in Titus chapter three. We are continuing through our series. It's kind of a micro series in a larger series. On the Fruit of the Spirit. Uh, we are on week 7, 8, something like that. Uh, there's nine v- Christian virtues that are listed in, in Galatians chapter 5, but this series on the Fruit of the Spirit is part of a larger series through the book of Galatians that we uh, began last year, actually. And as I was prepping for this sermon, I got convicted a little bit and wanted to share my conviction with y'all and put a charge out there for us. Uh, the fruit of the Spirit is, uh, is often quoted and known, but sometimes we go, yeah, what's the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, da, 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 da. So I was, I was uh, convicted to throw this challenge out there that we would commit as a church to memorize Galatians 5, through 25, that is the fruit of the Spirit, and, the, and two verses following it, uh, where Paul says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such thing things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. So my challenge to us is that we would Commit that to memory. Allow God's word to permeate our everyday living and consistently asking the Holy Spirit to produce such fruit in our lives. I believe he would be faithful to that request. And so I encourage you to consider this. But today we'll be looking specifically at the Christian virtue of gentleness. Uh, back in the summer, we offered a free Crossway publishing resource by author Dane Ortland a book called Gentle and Lowly. If you happen to pick up one of those resources and uh, haven't read through it yet, don't worry, it happens. Uh, I would encourage you, feel free to revisit that. Pick it up, read through it. If you have read through it, I would encourage you this week. Pick it up, read through some of the things that you highlighted that it that it spoke to you. Uh, I would I would put that forward. If you haven't yet read it, to as a great resource, uh, commend that to you. Uh, Dane Ortland does a great job just going through different verses, it's real short chapters, so it's a quick read on on Christ and His gentleness toward us. Um, one of the, one of the uh, quotes that came to my mind, I had to search for a little bit, but found it uh, as I was preparing for this sermon, is uh, Ortland actually citing a Puritan pastor by the name of John Owen, where Ortland writes this He says, quote, Jesus deals gently with the ignorant and the wayward. He is able, with all meekness and gentleness, with patience and moderation, To bear the infirmities, sins, and provocations of his people. What an encouraging sentence. That God, Jesus, this is the picture, and and it's not just only in this quote, but it's throughout Scripture, it's throughout Ortland's book, it's this picture that, that Jesus is not begrudgingly patient with us. He is willingly, intentionally patient with our weaknesses, and he's intentionally gentle in his response, showing loving kindness and mercy, even in times of discipline. And so we will consider a few of the biblical texts this morning addressing the concept of gentleness But this sermon by no means is an exhaustive study of gentleness. Rather, I hope that it is an encouraging and a challenging overview of this sometimes misunderstood virtue of gentleness. The big idea that I hope we walk away from today is that God's design for his people is for us to be gentle with others as he is gentle with us. And so we'll begin uh, with Titus chapter three. We're going to come back and revisit and and see the broader context of what Paul is saying here in uh, Titus chapter three. But Titus three, verses one and two says, Paul writes this, he says, "'Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, "'to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, "'to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, "'to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy.'" Toward all people. And so, as we look at this topic of gentleness, I think it, it's, uh, it's wise of us, one, to define what is gentleness and what gentleness is not. So, uh, I went to Webster's Dictionary to look for a, a definition of gentleness. And gentleness is uh, defined as a quality or state of being gentle. I think that's, that's, that's helpful. <laughs> Uh, So if you look up then the definition of gentle and put it together with gentleness, it is a quality or state of being free from harshness, sternness, or violence. An example I thought of was it's the refraining from the use of power or force and instead choosing a soft response over a harsh reaction. Gentleness is not, this is important, gentleness is not a personality type. Now, that type of person is just, they're just gentle. It's not a personality type. It is a fruit of the Spirit. Gentleness is not the absence of emotion. Gentleness also is not just merely being nice. Well, that's that's just a nice person. He's gentle. No, that's not what gentleness is, according to the biblical picture. And I cannot emphasize this one enough. Gentleness is not weakness. Our culture likes to put gentleness in the category of weakness. Well, that's a person that can be run over and and pushed around like, I don't want to be that way. This is not the biblical picture of gentleness. In fact, it's actually strength with, with reserve. It is strength and choosing not to respond in the strength that's available, but choosing to respond in gentleness. Biblical gentleness neither is collapsing under cultural or peer pressure into compromise. That is not gentleness. Compromising is not gentleness. Rather, gentleness is refraining from the strong reaction that is at your disposal to respond with grace And meekness in word and action as God has done with you. This is the biblical picture that we see of gentleness. It is not what we see when we look at the world around us. In fact, we live in a world where aggression, sometimes disguised as assertiveness, drive, ambition, but make no mistake, aggression is celebrated oftentimes and oftentimes rewarded in our culture. But what we see in Scripture as relating to the church, to Christian conduct, and to matters of the gospel, such behavior ought not mark Christ followers. Jesus, God represents himself as dealing gently with his people, and he calls us, and in fact, we'll look at three commands in Scripture for us, for gentleness to mark the life of those who follow God. So... Again, this is not going to be an exhaustive study of all of the texts that deal with God's gentleness towards us. In fact, we're just going to look at a, a few. But the, 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 the topic of gentleness is threaded all throughout Scripture in the way that God deals with his people. Even when he's disciplining, disciplining his people, there is a thread of mercy and gentleness that's, that's throughout as you read through, particularly through the minor prophets. And uh, that is the example that first came to my mind because on our morning men's Bible study um, that meets on Wednesday mornings, uh, we're going through the minor prophets together. And uh, we are going through Hosea right now. And so the first thing that came to my mind when I thought of God's gentleness was the picture of Hosea. Hosea was a prophet called by God to marry a prostitute. And remain faithful to her to personify God's faithfulness to idolatrous Israel. In chapter 11, God calls Hosea to seek out Gomer, his his wayward wife, who after he has already redeemed her from prostitution, married her, gave her a home, love, a family. She turned her back on Hosea and returned to a life of prostitution. And so in chapter 11, God God calls Hosea to pursue her, to find her. And and the, the beautiful picture of God's gentleness that Hosea is painfully portraying for Israel to see is though Hosea had the power, according to the law, to enact judgment because of Gomer's actions on his adulterous wife, in a demonstration of gentle mercy, Hosea seeks to restore her at great cost to himself. If you read through the account of Hosea, given in the Old Testament, you see that there's physical cost to Hosea. He had to literally pay off the, the mess that she's got, she had gotten herself in to bring her back. His wife, whom he already redeemed from, from that life, redeems her again. There's emotional cost and relational cost to this. Uh, but he intentionally sought her out to redeem her. Hosea personified God's declaration. Instead of a harsh, righteous judgment for generations of betraying the covenant and rejecting God's design, God explicitly says in Hosea chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, that he would woo Israel with words of tenderness. Rather than harsh words of judgment, which they rightly deserved for their continual rebellion against God and rejection of God's way, his design, his blessing. But Hosea chapter 2 gives this beautiful picture. Hosea the prophet says that God will woo Israel. He will speak tenderly to Israel. And the purpose is to bring them back into right relationship with God. In gentleness, God deals with the sins of his people by calling them to return to him. If you read through the Old Testament, you know Israel continued in their rebellion. They rejected God's pursuit, continued in their rebellion, and consequentially they faced God's righteous discipline. Yet even his discipline was for the purpose of bringing the wayward back which we see most gloriously represented and demonstrated at the cross. Where we stand in the story of redemption, we know that God went through great lengths to redeem a rebellious people. We see that beautifully displayed at the cross of Christ. But Hosea personified this gentle mercy triumphing over deserved judgment. And Hosea just points forward to a greater work of mercy that God would do through Christ on the cross. Now, I would encourage you to read through the entire account of Hosea because there are, are many different uh, points at which God's gentleness is on display. One in particular that we're going to look at this morning is found in Hosea chapter 11, verses 3 and 4. That says this It says, Yet it was I, this is God speaking through the prophet Hosea, and he gives two pictures. Of of his gentleness that we will look at, uh, he says. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up in, in by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. So we see two pictures in these short verses, two verses here, that that are used to to put God's gentleness on display, the extent that he would go. to to demonstrate his mercy. The first one is that of a father toward a toddler, a young child. In that first verse, it says, yet God says, yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by my arms. There's this gentleness in the strength as God says, I am the one who picked, just like a father who picks up his toddling child and carries them in the strength of his arms. I was that way toward Israel. Toward my people. And he said, and they didn't know that it was I that healed them. So, that first picture that, that is given there is that of a father in, endearingly and caring uh, for, for his young child. The second picture that's given in that verse is that of a farmer. Uh, with oxen, removing the heavy yoke from, from plowing over the, over the oxen and gently leading them, God says, I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love. I eased the yoke from their jaws. And so it's this, this picture that God gives of this farmer that removes the heavy burden of the yoke from the ox and puts on a light cord to lead them away from the labor that they are doing into where he has them to go. And he says, it was these cords of kindness and bands of love. And then I love how this verse ends. And I, God says, bent down to them and fed them. There's this endearing condescension of God coming near, coming down. They're beautiful portraits of the gospel. First, the picture of the father tenderly, gently picking up his young child. The second picture, that of a farmer removing the burdensome yoke and leading the oxen gently with cords of kindness and bending down to feed them. And what initially comes to my mind when I hear that God bent down is this picture of, of John chapter one, where John in his introduction says that, that God, Christ, the word who was there at the beginning of all this creation. And I love John chapter one. I love to talk about John chapter one because it is a huge picture of the gospels, uh, the God, of the four gospels. John just like starts off with a, a huge picture of this is our God. He was there at the beginning He he has always been there. All things were created through him, and guess what? That God, with all that infinite power, drew near. He pitched his tent among us. That God who is eternal, uncreated, he bent down. He condescended from on high to be among us. It is this gentle interaction. It is not a sign of weakness. It is a sign of great strength and power, tempered by love and mercy as God draws near. The New Testament is full of examples of God's gentleness toward us as well. Jesus declared, both declared and demonstrated God's gentleness. Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29, Jesus says this. He says, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. It's that picture of that farmer again, right? Taking that yoke off, the heavy burden off of the oxen. And Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. And learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Sounds kind of similar to what God said in Hosea. Gentle cord of kindness, and love. Jesus says, my yoke upon you because I am gentle. And so he declared his gentleness for others and the benefits of God's gentleness toward us. You will find rest for your souls. He also demonstrated God's gentleness. John chapter 11, specifically verses 32 through 35. John chapter 11 is the account of, of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, and, and the, 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 the events preceding Jesus going to, uh, to raise Lazarus was the word coming to Lazarus was sick, Jesus delaying. And uh, the context around all of this is we're getting towards the end or the latter time of Jesus's ministry. Tension is rising with leaders. They are plotting to kill Jesus the disciples and Jesus are aware of these plots to get Jesus off, out of the picture. And uh, where Lazarus, Mary, and Martha lived was a small suburb just outside of Jerusalem. And so if you read through John chapter 11, you'll see that the disciples are like, you, you're not going to go there, Jesus. You know what they want to do with you. The people that are there, they they want to kill you. And at one point, I love Thomas, Thomas goes, well, let's, if we're going, let's go to die. Like there was just this, let's do this. And Jesus, even though it was dangerous, goes to his friends knowing that Lazarus has passed, knowing that this was to put God's power on display Jesus tells his disciples, let's go. And I'm paraphrasing. And John chapter 11, verses 32 through 35, gives the account of Mary and Martha, who are sisters to Lazarus, who had passed away. They're grieving, obviously. They were close friends of Jesus. And so Martha comes and has a conversation with Jesus, and then goes at Jesus' request and gets Mary. And... Verses 32 through 35 give an account of Mary's interaction with Jesus. Now, it's easy for us to read texts like this and to displace the humanity, but remember, Mary just lost her brother. There's no scriptural account of Mary's parents. The fact that the three siblings were living together, it's possible that that Mary's brother Lazarus was their provider, was providing and protecting them. And so there's a lot of uncertainty for Mary and Martha in this time and culture, looking forward, what is going to happen to us? Not only are they grieving the loss of someone whom they dearly loved, their future is very uncertain. And so Mary comes to Jesus in this conversation in verse 32. It says, This now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, "Where have you laid him?" And they said to him, "Lord, come and see." And the shortest verse in all of the Bible, Jesus wept. I think what I love about this account Jesus knew what was coming down. He knew what, what the events were going to He knew that Lazarus was not going to stay in that grave. He knew, he told his disciples before they even started the tr- to travel to, to uh, Lazarus, where Lazarus was, he knew that God's power was going to be on display. But what did Jesus do? In gentleness, he bent down and entered into the suffering of his people. And he wept with Mary, knowing fully that Lazarus was only going to remain in the grave for a few short minutes and that he would be alive and well to the glory of God. Jesus did not rebuke her. Jesus did not say, Mary, I have many things that I am doing. No, Jesus bent down and wept with her. And a gentle response. And again, just emphasizing as Jesus not only declares his gentleness, God's gentleness toward his people, he also demonstrates gentleness toward people. It is to reinforce that God's design for his people is for us to be gentle with others as he is gentle with us. Not only are there examples, and these are just a a snapshot Scratch and sniff version, if you will, of the examples of God's gentleness toward us. There are also gentleness imperatives in Scripture where we are commanded as followers of Jesus to, to be gentle toward others. We're going to look at just three uh, this morning. And the first one's found in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, where Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus. And Paul writes this, he says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So the end of chapter 3 here in Ephesians, Paul declares the beauty of the gospel at work in the lives of believers. Paul is writing and praying for the church that Christ would dwell in their hearts, that they would be rooted and grounded in love, strengthened by the love of God, and that they would be filled with all fullness of God. Then after this prayer for the church, Paul rubs and declares sudden praise in verses 20 through 21 of chapter three. And, and, and he says, all of this work that, that you see around you and in the church, this is all God's doing. Because of this glorious gospel at work by the power of God's spirit in your lives. And so the end of chapter 3, Paul is praising God for the work that he has done in the lives of believers in the church. And then Paul says, because of this glorious gospel at work in you, walk in a manner worthy of that gospel. And essentially, what Paul is saying is let's make our lives a large billboard of the glorious beauty of the gospel. That when people look at us, they see the gospel on display. And then he gives some tangible examples of what that looks like humility and gentleness. This is an imperative, this is a command, that this be a part of our lives, this mark who we are if we are professing followers of Jesus. He says, patience, bearing with one another in love, and contending for unity and peace. And that, that term contending, I love it. He uses it in Philippians as well, and it's, it's almost like that, that team of oxen or horses that are pulling in the same direction a heavy load. They're not pulling in opposite directions, so no work gets done. They're pulling in the same direction. And so Paul says, let's work together for the mission and purpose of the gospel. Not only Paul, but Peter also took up a similar message. The next imperative on gentleness we'll look at is, is found in 1 Peter chapter 3, specifically verses 8, 9, and 15 and 16. Here Peter gives instructions. For all living under Roman rule. And guess what? Of those who would read this letter, pretty much all of them were under Roman rule at this time. And so he addresses uh, in, in the previous chapter, in chapter, uh, chapter two, and in portions of chapter three, Peter addresses some specific groups of people in the church. Uh, He says he addresses slaves and indentured servants. Now, keep in mind, at this time in history, in the Roman world, one out of every three people were indentured servants or slaves. So, this is a large group of people in the Roman world. He addresses uh, wives and husbands. And if he hasn't hit anybody else, by the time we, we get to chapter three, he addresses everyone else. And says, now, there were some specific commands for categories of people in the church. Now, these commands are for us all. And so we pick up reading in verse 8 and 9, where Peter writes this. He says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So Peter charges the church, pursue unity, act toward one another with compassion and sympathy, walk in love for the church, for your brothers and sisters, deal tenderly toward one another in humility, bless others, be prepared to declare why you are acting in in ways so contrary to society. So as Peter, similarly to Paul, lists out these Fruits that will be produced from the gospel at work in our lives, he says, two things are going to happen, not may happen. Two things are going to happen. People are going to scratch their heads and, and ask you, why are you acting the way that you're acting? Because it's weird. People don't act this way. Like when people treat people wrongly in the, according to the world's standards, you retaliate. That's normal. But you Christians are not normal. You forgive. And you're multi-ethnic, multi-generational. Like, how are you able to call someone on the other side of the world your brother and sister? Like, that's not normal. But it is as part of the family of Christ. And so Peter says, expect two things. One, people are going to scratch their heads. They're going to ask you why. Be prepared. And again, it's getting back to what Paul asserted earlier. Our lives should be a large billboard saying, this is the gospel on display in a broken, fallen sinner like me. This is the beauty of the gospel. Peter says they will scratch their heads and they will ask, so be prepared. But give your defense for the hope that you have. Give it with all gentleness And humility and respect, rather. The second thing he says to expect, expect that there will be those that do not like you for it. He doesn't say there might be those who oppose this way, there might be those that slander you. No, he says there will be those who slander you when you are slandered. Like, expect it because the world goes. That's not the way I want to do it. I want to live according to my flesh, and that means I, if I want to chew somebody out, I will. But you don't, and I don't like that. So I don't like you, right? Like this is the, this is the natural fleshly progression. Peter says, don't be surprised when the world hates you because you are acting like Christ. Because by the way, the world hated Christ. Be ready to give an account. Expect opposition. Don't use the opposition as an excuse to react as the world does, but rather glorify God and declare the gospel. And so finally, we return to the text we began with, Titus chapter 3. We're going to look at that. I started the sermon off with just a couple of the verses. We're going to look in a little more context on this. Um, So Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, and Paul is writing to, uh, this is part of Paul's pastoral epistles, his letters to pastors, Timothy has two, and then Titus. And so this is a a letter to a pastor who's shepherding a church, working with uh, fellow elders and pastors, and, and, and this is Paul's charge to Titus. And he says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Again, just to earmark, they're, they're under Roman rule. And the emperor at this time was Nero. If you know your world history, not a good dude. So he reminds them to be submissive, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. This is, that's, that's an easy list of checkpoints. Checks to, to, to check boxes to mark off. And he goes next, he says, for we ourselves, we were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Gospel focus for pastors to encourage God's people with a picture of what obedient living looks like through Christian virtue. We read the first portion of Paul's letter here and it's easy to go, yeah, right. How could anyone always respond this way? Which is exactly why Paul reminds us of what we were like before Christ. Remember what we were like before Christ? We were foolish, disobedient, Easily led astray, slaves to passions and pleasures, passing our days with malice and envy. We were hated by others and we hated others. We were self-centered before Christ. And this is a picture of all of those who are outside of Christ. This is this is our deep Paul just says, this is our default setting, people. But he doesn't end there. So when we look at this list of the things that should be outflowing from our lives and are tempted to be discouraged because it's not to the level that we would hope it is, he says, do two things. Remember how you were before the gospel, and then remember the gospel. If we could just get those two things out of anything that is said from every time there's a preacher in this pulpit, if we would just remember what we were like before the gospel and remember the gospel... What Jesus has done for us. If we could grab onto those two things, I do believe our lives would look different. There might be more of us joining Justin overseas, proclaiming the gospel. There might be more conversations happening in our neighborhoods this is not to bring condemnation upon us because scripture's clear, there is no condemnation. This is a challenge to us. Do we put the gospel on display? Is that the billboard that everyone sees in our lives? That ought to bring conviction. I know it does to me. Paul gives gospel focus for pastors to encourage God's people with a picture of what obedient living looks like through Christian virtue. But he also says, don't forget that we are first citizens of an eternal kingdom. That our citizenship was bought by the precious blood of Christ. That you have been redeemed. For those who are in Christ That way that you were before the gospel changed you, you're not that way anymore. Maybe you were predisposed to be harsh with people, to respond or to react with an emotional harshness. Brothers and sisters, you are not, if you are in Christ, you are not that way anymore. God calls us to be gentle with one another, not harsh in our response. We keep a gospel focus and we also keep our focus on that which is of an eternal nature. We remember that we are not citizens of a kingdom that has an expiration date, which is every worldly kingdom, but we are part, we are citizens of a kingdom that has no end. A king whose rule will never be overthrown. We are Citizens, if, those, if you are in Christ, we are citizens of heaven, and we need to keep a, a perspective of eternal things. And I do believe this has been challenged over the past two years in the church, it, it, and we have not done well in this challenge. At times we've done well, at times we have not done well, in focusing on temporal things and elevating those things above eternal things. And I think what Paul is getting at here, because they had their temporal challenges as well under Roman rule, remember Nero? (laughs) Wanted to kill them, martyr them, end Christianity. They had their challenges. Paul says the hope that we have, let's get back to Peter's charge too, that hope that we have is that we are a part of an eternal kingdom as a work of the gospel in our lives. So be ready for the work that demonstrates the gospel at work in your life. Speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling. Paul says here, be gentle, be kind, be courteous to all. Remember how you were before the gospel changed you and remember the gospel. So as we conclude here, I think Paul uses the picture of fruit And so we need to ask, how how can we cultivate gentleness? If fruit grows in our lives, are there things that we can do that that can help growth or hinder growth in our own lives? I would say, yes, there are. How do we cultivate gentleness? We look to the perfect example. The only example that we have of perfect gentleness, we look to Christ. We don't look to modify our behavior, to just do better, to determine that I'm going to be this way. No, we set our focus not on ourselves, but on Jesus. And how do we do that? He's given us his word. It's in our own language. We can read it. We can study it. We can memorize it. We can allow it to shape us and change us. And so may we be people of God's word as we look to Christ, the perfect example of gentleness. And I would say also look to the imperfect examples that God has given us as well. Look to the saints before you and around you. God has not given Christianity to be, to be pursued in isolation. It's to be pursued in community. And so we challenge and spur and encourage one another on. Read the writings of saints like John Owen and Dane Ortland, Charles Spurgeon, R.C. Sproul, J.I. Packer, John Frame, Martin Lloyd-Jones, and John Calvin. There's many, many more that we can read. And if you're not a reader, they've got this cool thing called audiobooks that works really well in your car, and you can listen. And, and, and if you're a really slow reader like me, you can just tackle one or two a year. It's not, it's, it's not a sprint. It's about being influenced by those who are pursuing Christ as a secondary influence, as a primary influence being influenced by Jesus, who has demonstrated and declared perfect gentleness toward us. And then finally, Paul Paul would say, obedience, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And I love that he uses the analogy of walking. He didn't say, sprint. He didn't say join a track and field team. He didn't say, you know, climb a mountain. He said walk one step after the other at the pace that God is leading you. Some may walk faster, some may walk slower, and that's okay. Paul would say walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Because it is God's design for his people that we would be gentle with one another. Our responses would be gentle as he is gentle with us. Brothers and sisters, may we grow in our Christlikeness. May we resist the temptation to react harshly and instead choose to respond with grace following the biblical picture of gentleness. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, this morning, first, I I confess for the times that I have reacted emotionally and, 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 and my reaction was harsh. Lord, I pray that you would forgive me. And God, I pray that you would convict us of those times that our reaction has been harsh, has not been honoring to you, God, I pray that you would convict us, that we would be quick to repent, and that we would seek forgiveness of those whom we have hurt with our words or our actions. And God, I pray that you would help us to respond with gentleness. In the strength of the gospel, knowing who we are and our identity being firmly placed in Christ for those who profess to be followers of Jesus, that we would respond gently toward one another. And I pray that we would walk in humility. I pray with Paul's assertion in Philippians 3 that that we, we would place others' needs above our own. We would serve one another. Not for anything that we can gain from it or But God, that we would do it because our eyes are set firmly on Christ. And we see the gentle way you deal with us. The gentle way, God, you deal with your people and that we desire to be like you. God, I pray that you would grow a burning desire in us for your word, a greater love for your people. And God, would you grow a desire in us to produce the fruit of your spirit, to be like you. That we would know you, that we would represent you well to the world around us, and that we would resemble you. God, thank you for your grace and your patience with us. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.